River Road, you got me running way back home. River Road, you got me running all night long. You got me singing some canal boat song. River Road, River Road, you got me running all night long. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Niner Nuts. We're we are two best buddies, nuts about the 49ers. And this week, we're nuts about movies. So, because we love movies so much, we love talking about movies so much, we do have a special review that we will talk about later in the show, along with a special guest. Do you want to introduce to us our special guest? Yes, guys. Uh, this is James, one of your co-hosts, uh, coming to you live uh, right now. Today is Friday, April the 1st, uh, April Fool's Day. Um, and just, you know... For all the viewers, uh, right now I'm drinking River Road Pinot Noir just to take in the essence of the film that we reviewed in a snooty film, you know, critic way that I like to do things. So, um, and so we do have a very special guest for you today. We have movie guru John. Hey, everybody. Um, he, uh, he worked with me and Dan at... Um, a long time ago, and so he is here to help us with the review of the movie. And we'll get to which movie in just a second, but we did, you know, we do talk about football on the show, and you, you heard on our last episode about the Fantasy Football League that we had together called the Yobo Goya Fantasy Football League, and John just happened to be one of the uh, champions of that league. So, John, yes, tell, tell us about winning the Yobo Goya Fantasy Football League. So how much did you want to know? Well, you know, I got you covered for about, you know, 10, 15 minutes. So, and so like, you know, tell us, tell us, tell us, tell us about winning the trophy. Oh, there's the okay. trophy. I, I'm just going to gently stroke it as I talk. Okay. <laughs> the trophy. Um, this is audio that you're talking about the trophy. Yes, I am. <laughs> I Wow, Dan, mind of the gutter, please. Anyway, we're, we're an audio podcast. We're there's no video to this. <laughs> anyway, um, so I won. My team name was Senior Wences. Um, I don't remember. Uh, there was a player named Wentz, and I remembered a line from an old movie, uh, not that old actually, American Sweethearts. Um, and I chose that name. The year that I won this, uh, I actually fought with James a lot because he was the commissioner, and I worked on Sundays. So I didn't always have a chance to change my my teammates around. And I was upset about that rule that you and Carrie were talking about last year, or <laughs> last episode, uh, where you were complaining that you couldn't have buys for more than a certain amount of weeks in a row. Um, and then I ended up winning uh, the season that I was yelling at you about this. Um, but the funny thing about this is that I actually won the season because my quarterback was Nick Foles, who I picked up right before our um, Championship our fantasy uh, finals started because um, there's no trading in the finals and my quarterback got injured and James suggested that I pick up Nick Foles because it ended up being the year that he won the Super Bowl. Um, and uh, I faced James in the finals and beat him with Nick Foles. Well, here's the thing. not here. So here's a little backstory about this, right? That, that's so, called poetic irony right there. <laughs> oh, check this out. Check this out. How evil I was and wanted to win the trophy. So John, at the beginning of the season, had drafted Aaron Rodgers. 
but Aaron Rodgers got hurt very early on in the season, and John decided to cut him fully off his team. So we're getting to the we're getting to the championship round, and Aaron Rodgers is. It looks like he's going to come back, you know, for you know the final week of this of fantasy football playoffs, right? But John doesn't follow the news so much, and Wentz gets hurt, which was his quarterback. So, you know, I was like thinking I'm going to pick up Aaron Rodgers and I'm just going to tell him to, dra- you know, to pick up Nick Foles, right? And so that way I have a better chance to win in the championship game. And so he asked me who you should pick up and I said you should pick up Nick Foles. And with the intention that I was going to pick up Aaron Rodgers <laughs> <laughs> so that I could win the league. And yes, there was poetic justice because Nick Foles ended up throwing for like 300 yards and four touchdowns against the Giants. And Aaron Rodgers pooped the bed against, I forget <laughs> who he was playing that day and didn't. And I was just, yep. And that's how John won um, and how I didn't. But honestly, if you're going to have either a fantasy football trophy or a Super Bowl, with I'll take the Super Bowl any old day of the week because <laughs> that was like the greatest feeling ever. So, John, congratulations and Thank you. glad you won on my advice. Yeah. Uh, in all fairness, uh, I grew up in New York, so I was always a air quotes Jets fan. I was never a huge football fan, um, but whenever I watched, I would root for the Jets. And I think the last time we won the Super Bowl was in, was it 64 or 67? It was Super Bowl three. That's all I, yeah. I don't remember the year. It was Super Bowl three. Uh, and legend, a long time legend, name is. <laughs> yes, and the legend goes that Joe actually, uh, this is an actual real thing that people believe in football and in media as a curse uh, for the Jets because it was ranked on NFL Network's top 10 curse or snake-bitten teams. I forget what the exact title was. But people believe that Joe Namath sold his soul to the devil or made a deal with the devil to win that Super Bowl. But because before that Super that was that was they were 14 point underdogs going into that game against the Colts. Um, and they ended up he says, I'm, I guarantee we're going to win it the day before the game makes news headlines. People are like, you know, the Jets aren't a real team. They're an AFL team, you know. And Joe says, I guarantee we're going to win. And he wins. And he doesn't even have, like, this great magical game. Like, he he didn't throw for, like, 300 yards and four touchdowns, you know. It was was still kind of a hard-fought close game. And he had, like, maybe, I think it was, like, 250 or 260 yards passing. But he was picked as the MVP because back in those days, the quarterback was the offensive coordinator mm-hmm. and had to call all the plays. So he that's why he won the MVP, because he called a game. And those that Colts team was talked about as being one of the greatest teams of all time, not just that season, but of all time. And he led the underdog Jets to a victory after guaranteeing it in the press that was the first guarantee ever. And so that was Super Bowl three. And people think that he either made a deal with the devil or even sold his soul to the devil. And that 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 way the Jets will never win another Super Bowl again. And it, 
it seems like that's kind of true, you know? <laughs> it, seems, it seems like it right now, for sure. But yeah. right now, we have to acknowledge and low-key cheer for them because Robert Sala and the LaFleur brother that's there now, I mean, there's a lot of 49ers over there. I just I, I will personally not throw too much shade at them because <laughs> just professional courtesy. I, I do wish Robert Sala the best and doesn't become a lame duck coach over there like uh, one, nice. one guy named Adam Gaze. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I was always of the mindset that as spectators, it should be fun for us. That's why, like, especially like with fantasy football, I always fought with James about the rules because I figured it was illegal amongst friends. Like, we shouldn't get too bogged down with the rules because as m- much as we enjoy it, we should just be having fun. You know, it doesn't really matter who wins or loses. It's, you know, about having fun. So, like, like I said, I mean, I'm an air quotes Jets fan, but I can't remember the last time I watched a Jets game. <laughs> I actually, I went to school where they did spring training back in the day. And, like, there would be Jets stuff all over the school. And, yeah, I I can't remember the last time I saw a game. <laughs> you, had a, you had a pretty good year in 20, what, 15 or 16? The one with Ryan Fitzpatrick? Yeah, Fitz Magic. You know why they call it magic? No, why? Because it's not real. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ow. Take I would, that, I would, I would, I would fight that. Except he did crap the bed in the last game, where it literally was winning in, and they, they didn't win. Yeah, not, you know, not too unlike Carson Wentz this year. <laughs> Once again, not a a huge, you know, football person. Very not, not nearly as knowledgeable as either of you. But we do not have a good, you know, track record with quarterbacks, really. Like, the year that Tom Brady was selected, we chose Pennington over him. Well, yeah, but to be fair, a lot of quarterbacks went before Tom Brady in that draft, okay? like He was 199. Cut him some slack. He was 199. No, if you really want – if you really want to know where the Jets went wrong, they picked uh, Ken O'Brien over Dan Marino, um, in the 83 draft, it was Dan Marino was slipping in the draft. There were all sorts of rumors as to why he was slipping. And the Jets had an opportunity to draft him. And instead, they drafted Ken O'Brien. Um, I forget what college he was out of, but he was a Division 1A, like he was Division 1 AA quarterback. Like he wasn't even like a Division 1 quarterback. And they picked him over. Dan Marino, but but to be fair to the Jets, Ken O'Brien had a winning record against Dan Marino. <laughs> they faced 15 times, and Ken won eight out of the 15 times. He was eight and seven against Dan Marino while he was on the Jets. But and that's actually, barely more than half. I know, but <laughs> I mean, he's still. I mean, it's it's sort of like you know. I mean, Aaron Rodgers with the 49ers, they passed on him, and Aaron Rodgers can't beat the 49ers. Well, you could say Dan Marino couldn't uh, get the, the best of Ken O'Brien in the postseason. He can't beat him. He whips us pretty good in the regular season, but in the postseason, no, we we own his ass. Exactly. Can I tell you that reminds me of the the logic of the people who have their favorite team be like the worst team in the league. And they're just like, okay, but we're not as good as, you know, the the Bucks this year, but we beat the Jaguars who beat the Dolphins. <laughs> who also beat the Bucks, so we're kind of the best of the league. Yes, those, yes. Those, those logic memes are the best. Those are so funny. Every time I see one of those pop up, I just die yeah. laughing. 
Yeah, I'm right. And honestly, you know, I would love to go on talking about fantasy football, the Jets, and how futile they are. And, you know, but we do have a topic to get to. And Dan, why don't you tell us what the topic is? Oh, I alluded to it at the top of the show. And keen observers will notice that it is in the episode title because that is where we're dedicating the majority of our audio time towards. We are doing a movie review of the Stanley Kubrick film from 1987, Full Metal Jacket. Like I said, directed by Mr. Kubrick. It is written by himself, Michael Herr, and Gustav Hasford, based on the novel The Short Timers by Gustav. And it stars Matthew Moudine, Adam Baldwin, Vincent D'Onofrio, Arlie Ermey. Just a little bit of window dressing, just in case you didn't watch the show or didn't know. But yes, that is the film that we are talking about. Uh, so... Before we get really into the weeds of it, uh, we agreed to initial reactions. Uh, I'll open the floor to either of you, whoever wants to start. Uh, well, um, I think I'll, you know, I'll start, you know, with my hot take on this because I told you last week that I had a hot take on this, and I've been telling John and Dan before the show what it is. And so, honestly, I love the movie. It, it's a great movie. Um, but it's an epic failure in the fact that this is an anti-war film um, meant to keep people who are deciding that who are thinking about going into the military to keep them from going into the military. However, this film for me and everybody I've been in the military with, everybody of all my friends who went into the Marines or the Navy or the Air Force or any of that will can contribute this film as a as a influencer to get them to join the military but the movie itself was actually meant to keep those people from joining and in that fact I believe it's an epic failure John what's Fair your enough. take on the movie uh in general um while I do like some of the movies that Kubrick has done, uh, this is not anywhere near my favorite. Um, I'm not a huge fan of this movie. Uh, I had watched it once before, uh, over a decade ago, and I was watching again for this podcast, and it was a, a bit of a struggle for me to get through. I just, I, I found like the pacing um, was a little odd. Like it, it feels like it's two movies that are joined together, which I think Dan you had mentioned previously to me. Um, but yeah, it just feels like two very different scenes uh, and it's just very disjointed to me for that. But it, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I watch it and I'm just like, well, this is well done, but it's not enjoyable for me at all. You know? Interesting. I, I guess I will give, uh, I mean, unless James, you elaborate more. I, I, I generally do agree with you, John, that the it's not the best Kubrick film, but uh, I am one of those film nerds that do hold Kubrick in fairly high regard. His his best movies and even this movie is better than some some people's best movies that they'll make in their career. But um, I I still find this movie very, very good. It's it's very effective in how sobering it is and how it portrays just dehumanizing people or how Kubrick and Gustav uh, agreed to portray and dramatize 
how they perceive the military to be dehumanizing to to everybody involved, not just our military, but like just how dehumanizing it is just to the general populace of everybody involved. Um, is it a perfect movie? No, uh, I'll agree with you that it does have some pacing issues. Like this, this viewing for me, it is definitely one of the slower of his movies, even though it's one of the shortest, ironically. But yeah, um, it definitely like if I remember like the first time I ever watched this film, I remember, you know, enjoying the first half of the movie so much, and then thinking the second half of the movie was just horrible. Like yes. I did, I like. Like I like if I remember back to when I first watched it, I loved the first part of the movie. Un, you know, sorry, I'm the, back. Okay, no problem. We're we're good. We're good. So I I was just saying like I like remembering from the very first time I watched it, I liked the first half of the movie a lot. You know, and un, understand like if you've seen this film and understand why I might like it. You know, I was maybe. 16 or 17 you know very interested in joining the military um and so the first half of the movie you know up until a certain point you know i really enjoyed you know and the second half of the movie i was just like hmm, that really wasn't so good you know but i was the type of person who enjoyed you know you know uh heroic stories of war you know and Though, you know, and I didn't, you know, I saw that this wasn't doing that, but never understanding, you know, why Kubrick made it that way and never understanding why the reason why he made the second half of the film the way he did. Um, and so um, I didn't start to realize that until, you know, um, honestly, you know, and think about it until, you know, just recently in my life and so, and that's where I started thinking about like, you know, my life as a film student and thinking about what was Kubrick really trying to do with this movie and what he was trying to say, you know, and, you know, I realized, you know, he wasn't trying to get me to enjoy this movie and be in the military like it did. He was actually trying to deter me from, you know, going into the military. And so that idea of how the effect of my life and not only my life, but, I guarantee you can talk to just about any military man, at least in the Marines and the army and ask them about this film. And they will definitely tell you if they watched it before they went in, it influenced them to get into the army and that's, or the, and the Marines. And I think that's where, like I said, it, it ends up being an epic failure. See, that makes it hard for me to understand. Like if you, if you actually comprehended the movie, like, or, I, I mean, I'm not trying to sound so flippant or blanket everybody, but like, especially the second half of the film, I've been a long time defender of the second half of the film. And maybe because I was kind of a little more primed for it from uh, when we talked off mic before. Yeah. Um, I paid a lot of attention to the first or the second half because I've seen the first half so many times. I've seen it on YouTube so many times. Everybody loves the first half of the movie. But the second half of the movie, really, I kind of enjoyed more this time around maybe because it's the first time I've seen it in a while. And I, I, like I said, I was a little more primed to focus in on this, on it this time, because you get what you get from the first half. You see private pile snap. That's the, that's the first half of the movie in one sentence pile snaps. So I don't know. I was just so it's, it's, it's impossible to not be affected. I feel 
watching so many of these little moments, there's numerous little moments where it's it's very nonchalant when they're talking in a very degrading and insulting and racist way about the people in Vietnam, how it's just in casual conversation between the firefights or when the documentary mm. film crew is talking to them. Those moments throughout the second half of the movie really, really hit me this time around. And that's where I think that the majority of the power of this film comes from. Like, yes, it is effective seeing how boot camp can be too much for somebody in the first half. But in the second half, when you're really in it and they really get uh, hit home with the, the thousand yard death, death glare. Yeah, it, that was I don't know. That was that was particularly I don't know. I thought that was particularly effective. And that's really why I like the second half of the film as much as the first half, if not a little bit more after this. And so one. and so I should warn everybody now we're going to move into the part of the show where we get in depth about the movie. And if you've been in a foxhole and, you know, uh, you know, like, um, what do I want to say, you know, just a whole for the last, you know, this came out in 87. So, you know, 35 years um, and you've not seen this movie, we are about to go into spoiler alerts. So just be wary that we are going to now talk about the film and the details of the film and what hit us about the film. Um, you know, John, why don't you tell us first, you know, about some of the details that you found um, about the film that, that support um, or just not support your take, but just you found interesting or found, um, you know, whatever. Go ahead. Uh, so I did watch this more critically this time than the last time I watched it. Um, like I said, I watched it years ago uh, and it was kind of just like a, I watched it so I could watch it type of thing. Um, and when I looked at it more critically now, I do feel like uh, pretty much everybody that is in the movie that has that mentality going through it, um, that they like, you know, being in the military or they are eager to be in the military, rather. Um, they are – I don't want to say that the movie demonizes them, but it kind of – it does portray them as, like, more sinister than those that are not eager um it, obviously private pile at the beginning when he right before he shoots the sergeant he has he angles his face down and he looks very very like sinister and evil in that particular frame but even later on animal um he is a more eager person and he's just a straight up a-hole to everyone you know yeah i think it caught the and captured the eclectic this of uh, people who actually sign up and join the military because we we seem to think that maybe they're all one mindset and they all have mm -hmm. one idea and really um, it captured that you know how like you know like Joker was almost like a hippie who you know joined joined the Marines and how you know you have Cowboy from Texas you know and you know his viewpoints of you know what a military man should be. And then you have animal and what his idea of a military man should be. And so, and how they're all part of the Marines and how they all, you know, like, you know, one thing I realized when I was going through boot camp is honestly, if you make it through boot camp in AIT in Sand Hill, Fort Benning, Georgia, that's something that nobody can take away from you. 
not even the men you went through it with. They may call you names because honestly, I wasn't very popular in basic training. It wasn't that I screwed up or got, you know, you know, people in trouble or anything like that. It was just, you know, I complained a lot, you know, and about some of the things other people were doing. It's not like I went to the drill sergeant though and complained, you know, because you don't really rat out your buddy, but I, I complained a lot about some of the people in the platoon and they took personal um, offense to that. However, uh, and they took a personal offense to it. They called me crybaby. That was my nickname. They called me crybaby because I cried about everything. And so, you know, they picked on me or whatever. And I ended up, you know, graduating, you know, infantry, army infantry training. And then I did three weeks at airborne school. Um, and I ended up at Fort Bragg. And there, you know, when I got back from my deployment to Kosovo, because, you know, I did a deployment to Kosovo, here I see that guy who came up with the nickname Crybaby for me. And he was, it was like he was my best friend, you know? Mm -hmm. He was he was actually, he actually, you know, looked at me and, you know, we hugged and, you know, we say, how are you doing? I just told him I got through a tour, you know? And, you know, as much as he, you know, had that nickname for me, he still had the, res I still had his respect that I, um, that I made it through, um, you know, basic training and AIT infantry training and airborne school and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think it showed, you know, not only that, you know, there's this bondness between people who, um, don't actually have the same ideas about the military. And, um, I think it accurately portrayed that. Do you take offense to the more cynical nature of what the film ultimately, at least in, in my interpretation, ultimately says the the army is doing to the soldiers. Well, I mean, this is saying it's Marines, but yeah, like I mean, it it's basically saying that uh, they brainwash you um, into becoming a killer. But I think what people need to understand is about it, um, especially for those who are in infantry, that you need to have a mentality like to be a killer. You need to be a killer. You need to be able to pull that trigger when you have to and react when you have to. Otherwise you're gonna die and your buddy's gonna die. You know, they make they make a they make it a very point it's not just you that's gonna die. But you're going to put your buddies at risk. You're going to put everybody in your unit at risk. And, you know, so that's that's the way to do it. You this is you tell me a better way to do it. And, you know, yeah, I, I you know, maybe I'll take it into consideration. But, you know, I was, um, you know, when I first got there, you know, I was, you know, when you know, the drill sergeants and the captains and everybody's are showing us what basic training is like, because when we got there, we, there was such an influx of infantry men that we had to wait three weeks just to get to day one of basic training. And so they would take us out and show us companies that were training and, you know, um, you know, they're doing, you know, what makes the grass grow and blood, blood, bright red blood, you know, like teaching you to get that mentality to be a killer. And here I am like, you know, private pile with a grin on my face as they say it, you know, cause it's sort of funny, but you know, the captain was like, 
this is not a joke, son. This is real. You know, if if you think this is a joke, you should go home right now because you you are in infantry. You have to be a killer. You have to pull the trigger when you need to. You need to react and you need to make these things that we're teaching you, you know, basically muscle memory so that, you know, when the time comes, you act in the way to prevent you and everybody around you from dying. And the goal is not to lay your life on the line for your country and die for your country. The mentality that they want you to have is you are to put the enemy in a perfect position to die for his country. And that's the mentality that they want you to have because they don't want... They don't want you to die. They don't want you to go off the war and die. They want you to come home to your family. They want you to be safe and do what you can to get back home. And, you know, that's, that's, it's necessary is my sort of defense of that. Because, you know, and, you know, I think I talked about Pyle, like with, with Private Pyle, like, um, you know, it does a good job of weeding people who just can't hack it from even getting to the point where Pyle does. You know, like, I I look at that movie and, like, he may not have even made it past week three or four, you know, because it would have weeded him out by that time, you know. Um, you know, so that's sort of my defense of, you know, military basic training and how it's portrayed in the movie, because I would say, other than some of the racist connotations that it has, you know, that at least when I was in, it didn't have that racist connotation. Um, it's very much justifiable in creating to what you need to be to go off to war. Hmm. Interesting. That Like, having your perspective on this is, is like... For people that didn't listen to my old show, um, not going to name drop it because it's not on anymore, but we did Top Gun. And I thought that was going to be fun. Like it was pseudo, it was Air Force, but it was still fun to talk to you about the movie, even though you weren't in the Air Force. So like seeing something more close to what you did. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm blown away. Like I have all these thoughts in my head about like the filmmaking aspect of it. And like, you just, you just melted my mind. Not, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Like, really, like, how, your dead honest take on this movie from the military perspective, really, it's 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 insightful. And it really is. It's taken me a, a pause for a sec. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that's why, like, people like me who had the inclination to go into the military love the first half of the film, you know, love the first half of the film, because it's like, yeah, like, I I want to go through this because it's a challenge. It shows how challenging basic training really, really is. And, you know, does it in a very real light that's like, man, like I just, I want to be able to go through something like that, you know? And, you know, for me, I think it was like, you know, to, you know, become a man, you know, just to say, you know, I did it, and this is something you can't take away from me. Um, at a very young age, at nine years old, I told my dad that I wanted to be a paratrooper, like, straight out. Now, if you understood what my mind was like in at, at nine years old, 
Like I coasted on, you know, my smarts. I didn't do homework yet. I could ace every single test, but homework wasn't challenging to me. Um, they tried to get me into gifted classes, but I, they really, like, I wasn't at a level where they liked, you know, because I didn't do my homework, you know, um, I, they didn't feel like teaching me anything new that could challenge me. So they just kept me in regular classes. And so for my whole school life, I coasted through school, especially like middle school and high school getting, you know, um, high C's because I wouldn't do my homework um, because the tests weren't challenging and, you know, they, I wasn't challenged and what looked like a challenge to me, but was a challenge to me would have been becoming a paratrooper. And that's really what I wanted to do. I said, you know, I really didn't care about school. I even tried to convince, you know, to almost go at 17 because I was 17 my junior year and they had a program where you could go in at 17 into the reserves, go to basic training during the summer, come back, do school, and then go to your AIT after you got out of high school your senior year. And I almost did that. Um, but, you know, I, I thought better of it. I thought to maybe take my time and to really think about it. But at 19 years old, you know, I um, I wasn't the the best teenager. Um, you know, I was living under my parents' roof, smoking a lot of pot, not really having a job, not pro providing anything for my mom and dad. I quit school. I had quit business school and they were putting pressure on me to, um, pay rent, you know, like parents should do to their children. And I said, you know what, it's time and I'm going to do this. And so I, I signed up for active duty at 19 years old, you know? And that was because I saw how challenging it was, you know, to get through basic training, you know, in this movie. And I was just like, that's a real challenge. That would be a real challenge for me. And, you know, and it honestly was, it wasn't, it's not easy getting through, you know, boot camp, you know, and it, I mean, we lost at least 20 guys, you know, just from people just quitting, you know, straight up quitting. And you want to talk about guys who really want to go through the military and go through training? Let's talk about the guys who make it to week 11, week 13, and hurt themselves. And then they have to get recycled when those guys at week two and week three quit. And they have to start back at week two and go through everything that they went through before again just to graduate. You know, and that's that happens and nobody talks about that. Like, so you know, it's a challenge and it made me want to take on that challenge. And that's where, you know, the movie sort of was just like, it didn't deter me. And, um, yeah, um, that's, a, I mean, it's a very real portrayal. And it, it was just, I looked at it as I want to do this because it's challenging. It's something, you know, you know, that you can't take it away from me once you do it. You just can't. So. Right. And I can see what you mean. Um, I can see what you mean by the movie not working that way, because in a way, like its accuracy kind of worked too well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not to interrupt, but we have brief housekeeping to do. We have to talk about a sponsor very quickly before we dive a little bit more into the movie. James, hey, sponsors. 
sponsors. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna shift our sponsors. If you are in the Melbourne, Florida, out, reach out to Ali Catino at Madison Allied Real Estate, 321-698-4692. When I was shopping for a home in Rockledge, Florida area, I told Ali how much I wanted to pay for a house, and she respected my price range and did not try to persuade me to go above my budget. She's a great realtor that will get you into a house you love at a price you can afford. That's Ali Catino at Madison Allied Real Estate. 321-698-4692. Once again, 321-698-4692. Um, so back to any in-depth takeaways um, from the film. If you don't I mind. I've, I've talked a lot. So John. I will actually, James, I had a question for you. Okay. So there is a trope in movies where or any movie that has, you know, a portrayal of the armed forces where there's this one big muscular bulky guy that carries a giant gun, but then nothing else. Now, in this movie, Animal does have some packs, but for the most part, he's wearing the uh, ammo as a, a bandolier and carrying that large gun. Is that accurate to real life? Do they have one person? that because the, the, the firearm they're carrying is so heavy, they don't actually carry their pack and somebody else has to carry it for them. That is very accurate, yes. Really? Um, okay. Okay, basically, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, he, he would carry his pack, but the, he's firing an M60, right? Mm -hmm. So he's got to carry the M60. But with an M60, you know, you have, um, I believe it's a tripod, that's got to be carried by the assistant gunner, you know, and all the ammo is carried by the assistant gunner. Okay. So, you know, when you have a guy on an M60, you have another guy in the 82nd Airborne with an M4. So he has what is an M16, but, you know, sort of uh, compact that can compact. And he carry, he also, he carries all the ammo and he carries, um, he also carries the, uh, the tripod for it. Plus, guess what else he's got to carry? He's got to carry five mortar rounds in his pack as well. Because, you know, I was a mortarman and if, you know, they they would carry mortar rounds in their thing. So, I mean, so they, assistant gunners carried a lot and that was usually done by a new recruit or somebody mm -hmm. who just got to the unit. Um, and the M60 gunner would, would carry the M60, he would probably carry, um, you know, uh, some mortar rounds and some ammunition, um, you know, as well. Um, you know, that, you know, that was sort of an accurate portrayal of that, I would okay. think. Um, you know, they wouldn't, I mean, he was, they didn't have it on like bandoliers and things like that. And understand I was, I was in Kosovo um, which was a peacekeeping mission. So, um, you know, I I didn't see it actually in action with an M60 going into war and how that really affected because I was with headquarters platoon as a mortarman. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mortarmen are, you know, indirect fire of sort of artillery, but a smaller artillery. We had a an M60 uh, mortar tube I carried, and I carried the tube. I had an assistant gunner who carried the base plate and the bipod for that, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, the bandolier, I say, is definitely overplayed, and 
you know, that is definitely a Hollywood thing. Um, but, um, you know, the fact that, you know, these heavy packs and that somebody is carrying a lot for an M60 gunner, um, that's very real. Um, and now, Dan, I had a question for you because I came with my own little outline. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so now, as I was watching it, I noticed that um, Rafterman, as he's taking uh, shots, specifically the scene um, where they're uh, looking at all the uh, dead South Vietnamese that were just put in that uh, hole with a lie. The, the, um, mass, the mass grave? That yes. moment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's taking photos of another uh, soldier, and he is. I mean, obviously, you know, this was set in the 60s or 70s, so they didn't have digital cameras, so they didn't have auto um, for all the uh, lighting and stuff. He <laughs> not once changes the shutter speed, and he changes the focus every single time he takes a photo, but he's not changing the aperture either. <laughs> Do you think he's a bad photographer? Oh, Lord. I Of all the little details that Kubrick would get into this movie, the fact that he would let... It, he would let it slide that this photographer look as unprofessional as as he did in that moment. That's a very keen eye. I did not pay attention to that. I, I feel like <laughs> the argument could be made that because the lighting and the situation did not change, the aperture and the shutter speed wouldn't necessarily need to change. But he does not need to readjust the focus every time he's taking a picture of the same person who's at the same distance from him. That's a that's a trope in itself, though. Like if you see paparazzi in a movie too, like. The lens is just going back and forth and back and forth and like. <laughs> <laughs> I would that's like so, to. That's so funny. I did. I really didn't pay attention to that. I was more caught up in the. That was the moment when he was just like inside every Vietnamese as an American trying to get out, and I was just like, "Oh <laughs> yeah. my god!" Like, <laughs> well, John, <laughs> that speech itself is very scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and John, I would like to uh, correct your error. Well, sort of like your nuance of the film taking place in the '60s and the '70s. This does take place in 1968 um, because they talk about the Tet Offensive, and the Tet Offensive right. was in 1968. So the movie does clearly take place uh, during that year. Um, that but I the, didn't know what year that took place, so I'm like, I know it takes place during the Vietnam War, which was the 60s and the 70s. So, <laughs> yes, but the Tet the Tet Offensive was specifically in 1968. So now that actually brings me to the next question, and this is for both of you. Okay, okay. Now, I like how um, we're getting interviewed by our guests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as you mentioned earlier, um, the author of the book and then one of the writers of the movie was Gustav Hasport. And now the book itself was semi-autobiographical because he was a war correspondent during Vietnam. Um, now, do you feel that he Mary sued himself or Mary sued Joker in this movie? Because there are lots of times where Joker is very much seems like he's the coolest person in the room. He's the most sane person in the room. He's the only one that sees through everybody else's BS. And there's even a, a part where, and thank you for reminding me about this, James, where they're talking about news stories and he brings up that there may be an attack during the Tet holiday and everybody else in the room is just like, no, it's not going to happen. So he's the only one that foresaw the Tet offensive. Well, to be fair, I think what he was expressed, what the, I guess it was the Lieutenant Colonel that he was talking to. The Lieutenant Colonel had heard that probably every year mm -hmm. of the war as a rumor. And so therefore, you know, you know, the Viet Cong were sort of like playing him, like, you know, waiting for the right time to do the Tet Offensive. 
So he just sort of said, we hear that every year. And, you know, um, you know, I mean, did anybody really think that it could happen? I mean, maybe people did and were like Joker, but I think you can understand from, you know, the Lieutenant Colonel's point of view where we hear it every year. So we're not taking serious credence to it. So I, I agree with that, but I feel, or at least I felt like it was very much like a, see, I told you, I knew it would have happened and no yeah. one listened to me. And that's why it happened. I could have saved all of those lives. I could have stopped it. I felt it was very much like that because it, it, it felt like it was out of the way to, to talk about that, you know? Yes, think, but... Oh, I'm sorry. Finish what you were saying, James. I'm sorry. Yes, but to, to say that he... he Like, I don't think even he could have thought on the scale that the Tet Offensive was. Mm. Like, the Tet Offensive... Like, the scale of the Tet Offensive is not just what happened at his base, but it happened everywhere it happened to every single military outpost at the same time on the on the tet holiday like this wasn't just like you know and i think like you know like even the scale that you know maybe matthew bodine's character joker is thinking like it could happen he couldn't have even predicted how big a scale the tet offensive was and you know like i don't even think like he could have predicted what it did to the war in Vietnam because I, you know, I looked up, like I decided to look up, you know, what, you know, the Tet Offensive and how important it was uh, in the Vietnam War. And that was a turning point, not only, you know, in the war itself, but to getting Lyndon B. Johnson out of the White House. Um, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson um, had, you know, gone publicly and said that winning the war was very close. And then the Tet Offensive happened and it sort of exposed, um, you know, our involvement and in how really uh, we could, you know, we may not be able to win this war. Um, and so I don't think that I can't, I would highly doubt that the writer could have predicted that just at, in the moment. I don't mm -hmm. think he could have done that. But this, it was written after the fact. Yeah. I yeah, think I, I think the point that you're getting at, I thinking about it, I can see shades of that for sure. Um, there's a couple. There's definitely a couple moments in there where he definitely comes off as like the smartest guy in the room. Definitely the uh, the oh, I got a bad feeling about this. But I think I think what's more prominent in this movie. Um, <clears throat> I think what's more prominent in this movie that takes a, that distracts you from being completely engulfed in like him Mary suing himself is um, just the heightened dramatization of him being the the most innocent, the most open to seeing the world still as like we're all one people, war shouldn't be happening. What? Well, how did we get to this point? What can we do? Like that. The, the his ideals i think that's what's more prominent in this movie like to, to, to eh, excuse me to directly answer your question yeah there's a little bit of mary sue in this but i i think what's more prominent about this that you could argue is taking away from necessarily some of like the 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 accuracy necessarily necessarily like him kind of dramatizing himself to a point that makes him seem bigger than necessarily what he was like mm -hmm. no offense to him um i think it's just a heightened for the dramatic effect of using him as this 
central point of innocence. And when mm -hmm. in the end of the film, he's when his innocence is gone, all hope is lost. Everybody's got the the thousand yard stare. And we just walk into the darkness with the world on fire, s singing the Mickey Mouse Club song. Like, yes, yeah, I, I, I like, you know, you, I like how you brought that up because I, I made a point to, um, to talk about um, the last line of the movie too, because that is, you know, very much an essence uh, of war and being in these situations and being in a combat zone. Um, the last line of the movie is, I'm in a world of earmuffs, one, two, three earmuffs. If you have children listening, one, two, three earmuffs. I'm in a world of shit, but alive and I am happy. Um, you know, that is sort of the essence of a soldier who is going through war um, and sort of like the happiness of, you know, we just got out another day alive and we're going to sing the Mickey Mouse scene song, you know, honestly, you know, thinking about music in this movie, there wasn't really a lot. Um, but I did. The, the juxtaposition of, like, of, of the type of music though, because they had a lot of rock and roll upbeat, like the bird is the word and the Rolling Stones are in the credits. And then like, yeah, juxta, just, just yeah, juxtaposing that with the, with the rest of the tone of the movie, I thought it was yeah. a really interesting choice. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely the choice of music was really cool, I think, in this movie. Um, you know, and yeah, it was used very, very well. Like even the opening scene, the, I, I mean, I don't, you know, the, you know, um, you know, hello, my darling, or goodbye, my darling, hello, Vietnam, you know, just as they're getting their head shaved, you know, <laughs> like, like it, it the choice of music was really, really good in this movie for sure. It was very self, it was very conscious and very aware of what it was doing, juxtaposing what us in America was having like this revolution with the rock music and the, 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 the riots, uh, the, for racial equality and like all these things happening while in the midst off across the ocean was, was this, was Vietnam and the way the film portrays it. I'm using, choosing my words carefully, just this dehumanization and just, mm -hmm stripping away people's sense of uh, just looking at a fellow human being as a human being and just seeing yeah. them as like a shooting target. Like, and yeah. I'm, I, everybody's view on that is what I, I'm just saying from what the film is clearly saying and what Kubrick is saying is, is that, and I still stand by, I think it's very effective for what it wants mm -hmm. to say, but based on everything that we've discussed, like James, especially like, it's not, it's definitely not as black and white and having a conversation like this after the movie, I think, is a healthy way to compartmentalize and process everything that um, for much bigger things like this. <laughs> now, do you guys have a social media presence for the podcast? Uh, somewhat. Uh, we have a Twitter page um, and we have an email address. We're working on um, doing Facebook and some of the other um, social media presences are we will we will get to that. Um, definitely. But, um, you know, well, if you don't mind, I would like to ask your listeners their opinion on something. Okay. I have two things that I noticed during this movie, and obviously I'm happy to hear your opinions as well, but I think that it'd be fun to hear what, you know, just everybody feels about it. Um, there's a part where there's a, um, a, 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 I'm trying to think of the appropriate, 
Uh, earmuffs, if you don't mind. Three, two, one. Uh, hooker, prostitute, sex worker. I don't know any of those are appropriate for any ears, but there, there's a a, a a pimp with her, and he's trying to sell her, essentially. And the way he's advertising her, I felt, reminded me a lot of Cheech Marin in From Dusk Till Dawn. <laughs> Well, it's been a while <laughs> since I've seen From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, uh, so I wanted to know if anybody else felt that way. And then there was another part, which I will get you the screen grab so that you could post it on your Twitter, okay? But 76 minutes in the movie, they are doing a, a part where they're filming across, you know, a whole bunch of people and interviewing a whole bunch of people. And walking across the screen, there's a man that is fully bandaged up over his face. Oh, is I it saw a mummy? that. Is I it a mummy? <laughs> it reminded me of um, it reminded me of the famous still from uh, Threads, the British nuclear fallout movie, because he was the poster for it um, in certain markets. Like this guy just completely bandaged up. Like <laughs> that's what it made me think of. Because I was thinking the mummy helped us in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> Call Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and now uh, I know that Dan, you were worried about relating this to the topic of our podcast, right? Now, you noticed that there was a a football-centric character, right? Which character? Which so, one? Walter Shinoski is calls himself, and by the way, he very clearly gave himself this nickname because no one else would give him this nickname, but he calls himself Mr. Touchdown. And he oh. played for Notre Dame, and he says that that's why his platoon calls him that. When we all know that the reason why they call him that is because he tells them to call him that. Interesting. Yes. I, that, another, whoop, just. <laughs> it, it was for... like a 30-second scene, and all I could feel is like, this is so, someone trying to give himself a nickname to the new guy, because it's right as Joker joins the platoon that has Cowboy in it. Oh, oh, yes. okay, yeah. And I'm just like, this, he saw this new guy, and he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm in charge, and my nickname's Mr. Touchdown, because I played a little ball for Notre Dame, and everybody calls me Mr. Touchdown. Well, that, that is probably, an, you know, shout out to all the good officers in the military, um, you know, who got a college education and don't really brag that they went to college, but that is probably... Uh, you know, a good, a good, you know, how should I say, you know, like accurate representation, accurate representation of officers, you know, in the military when, you know, maybe a news reporter comes around and, um, you know, um, so, you know, where they sort of brag about themselves. Um, but um, I think uh, there's one thing I, you know, we talk about attention to detail um, in Kubrick, and you know, one thing I liked um, was the realistic portrayal of the jamming of the M16A1. Um, Joker at the very end has an M16A1 and tries to shoot the sniper, but it jams, right? And that is actually something that actually did happen. Uh, to the M16A1 during Vietnam. Um, it was a fully automatic weapon uh, when brought when brought into the war. And you were supposed to not have to be clean it. Like it was it was marketed to the soldiers as something that you wouldn't have to clean. 
Well, the minute they got it into battle and started firing it, it started jamming because they weren't cleaning it. <laughs> so, um, and it would jam, the M16A1 would jam a lot. And so, you know, during the war, um, you know, they, they, it would do that. And so that was a, a, like a detail that I sort of liked that he wrote in, you know, to the movie as like, he's carrying an M16A1 it jams, the sniper hears it, you know, um, rafter man, you know, kills her. And then he's got a shooter with, I believe it was an M9, um, you know, nine millimeter that he used. Um, but like, I like that, you know, he even, you know, did that. Um, and I, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. And since then the military moved on to the M16A2, which is not fully automatic, but has a three round burst instead of fully automatic. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you guys knew about that or caught that. Um, I did not know about that, but I do prefer guns with a three round burst when I play call of duty. <laughs> I did not know any of that either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we still have some time. Um, I think, um, we can sort of maybe, talk about the uh the niner news um you know the and shift towards that a little bit and talk about kyle yushtek getting signed to an extension um not an extension not to correct i mean to correct that very briefly kyle yushtek was uh he has been under contract but the last three years of his contract were an option and he got picked up he's uh his is like 3.7 million for 2022 is guaranteed. His 4.7 for 2023 is guaranteed. And uh, his contract continues onward. Uh, I don't know the money, but he is signed through 2025. So two, three, four, and five. He's still going to be with us for the next four years. Thank Jesus, because he really is one of the low-key best players on the team. He He creates running lanes. He picks up blitzes. He does a lot of this dirty work that doesn't show up on the box score. And I ask any other Niners fan, when he's not in the lineup, like you can tell in the offense, there's there is a notable difference, or at least there has been in the past. And I think my favorite part about him is that not, you know, that he's uh, wearing number forty four, um, like somebody should wear forty four um, in the wake of uh, Tom Rathman, who was um, some of the older forty nine er fans know was such a great fullback during those dynasty years um of the 49ers um and so um i that's what i like about him that you know he brings some you know another credible fullback um to the number 44 for the 49ers yeah and i i i told you before he got drafted just after the super bowl but i remember when we signed him like how happy i was that we were able to take somebody from them because i was still it's taken me, I'm over, I'm, well, not over it, but like, it was kind of nice at the time because of how much more bitter I was towards the Ravens. Just like, yeah, we took one of your best players. Take that. But, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, other otherwise, news-wise, I mean, it's it's honestly, like, it's specifically Niner news. It's kind of been quiet, but it is worth celebrating that um, Debo hasn't been traded yet either. And oh, yeah. yeah, we got Kyle Juszczyk still. Yeah, and speaking of Debo getting traded, we're going to go to Jimmy Bean's long shots. Uh, right now, Debo to play uh, week one on any other team is plus 550 right now. 
Um, so you can, uh, you can, you know, make a little money if you think uh, Debo might actually really get traded. And honestly, you know, that sort of plus 550 shows an indication that it is uh, something that could definitely happen. You know, we're not talking about plus 1000 odds. We're talking about plus 550 odds. And that, that sort of lends to like, there's a good chance that that could happen. And it's just over the marker for Jimmy B's long shot to set plus 550. So, um, not, ter- not terrible. I, I, not, not terrible. That's Definitely the shortest hard. long shot you've had so far, isn't it? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think plus 550 is sort of the shortest long shot that I've had. Um, you know, to be to qualify for Jimmy Bean's long shot, it needs to at least be plus 500 or more. Um, you know, um, so. But there is also another one. Yeah, guys, you know, we think EJ Perry should be the first quarterback off the board. And if you think so, too, and you think it's actually going to happen, you can get plus 20,000 for EJ Perry to be the first quarterback off the board. Now, his hype man uh, took a break this week, I saw. But uh, rumor has it that he may be, you know, hitting up the Raiders pretty hard to uh, because we all know the Raiders take chances and flyers on people based on talent in the first round. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're meant to be, you know, drafted in the fifth round. If the Raiders think that he's worth taking at number one, they will take him at number one. So just look out for that. Um, plus 20,000 right now. Um, and now we're going to plug the next show. Um, always and always be ready for the Jimmy G trade emergency podcast. And then we will also do a Jimmy G appreciation podcast after that. Guys, April is child abuse prevention month. And we will have Jessica Miles from the Child Prevention Task Force of Brevard County, Florida, will be on our next show. So we will bring awareness to child abuse prevention on our next show. Um, if you uh, want to support us financially and want to hear, um, you know, more movie podcasts, you can go to patreon.com backslash Snyder Nuts. There are four tiers. All tiers get instant access. And we do have tiers with exclusive merchandise as well. You can follow us on Twitter at Niner Nuts. Uh, if you want to, uh, you know, talk a little bit about our show or, you know, you have ideas for the show or things that we could do that you would like to hear, you can email us at 49ernuts at gmail.com. That's 49ernuts at gmail.com. We also, if you are on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you write a review and give us a five-star rating. We will read every five-star review on the air. Um, once again, our logo was created by Daniel Mayer at Mayer Creative. Outro music um, is River Road by Justin Muth. You can find that on SoundCloud by searching River Road, James Bray. I did not write the song, but when I had to post it on SoundCloud, that's what I had to do. Um, we also have official merchandise at bonfire.com backslash store backslash niner dash nuts dash apparel. Uh, T Public is still pending. Dan, do you have anything to add to the show um, at this moment? Well, I will, as I always do, hit refresh on Roto World just to double check. And not Roto World, it's NBC Sports Edge now. I always forget to mention that because it was called Roto World forever. And nope, nobody of note for the 49ers. 
Uh, ooh, actually, Dolphins fans, Xavier Howard has signed a five-year, $90 million extension. So congratulations to Xavier on that extension. Okay. John, do you have anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we say goodbye? I mean, the only thing I want to say is um, keep looking at the Niner Nuts Twitter for that picture of the mummy, because I'm going to be posting it, or I'm going to be giving it to you when it post. And I want to know if anybody else thinks it's really the mummy, and also if anybody else gets some severe Cheech Marin vibes from that uh, that uh, presentation of that Lady of the Night. Okay. And as always, guys, this podcast believes that A.J. Perry should be the first QB off the board in this year's draft. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you on the next episode of Niner Nuts. River Road, you got me running way back home. River Road, you got me running all night long. You got me singing some canal boat song. River Road, River Road, you got me running all night long.